0: Hey, everybody, this is Katherine from the Media Education Lab, and you're listening to the Courageous Rhode Island podcast, the show that finds common ground, builds media literacy skills, and encourages curiosity for the people of Rhode Island. In this episode, our host Renee Hobbs talks with author and teacher Kent Lency, who wrote a book called Learning to Depolarize, which connects classroom learning to navigating a polarized society. Lency explores topics including what citizenship means to him, why media literacy is a fundamental citizenship skill, and how teachers and students can help depolarize our communities.
1: Hey, I'm Renee Hobbs, and welcome to the Courageous RI podcast. Today, I'm here with Kent Lenche, and he's the author of Learning to Depolarize. He founded an organization called Middle Ground School Solutions because he is trying to help us educators and students alike, make our classrooms places where we can restore um, civility and democracy. Uh, Kent, well, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Renee, and we haven't known each other long enough for to have encountered this little blip, but we, uh, probably in the old land, somebody pronounces it Lenshee, but we're, we're pronouncing it Len- Yeah, Lenshee.
1: Lency, thanks, yeah. thanks so thanks so much. <laughs> no um, so how did how did it happen that you got to write a book with this great title, "Learning to Depolarize"?
0: Yeah, well, what happened first was that I was a teacher for twenty years, so invested in learning. And what also happened along the way was that I got increasingly concerned about political polarization in this country. And one way to tell the story is that. Over the last few years in my teaching, I had the chance to engage in some really exciting partnerships where I have my kids in Massachusetts partnered with kids in Alabama, and we were helping to break down stereotypes and our impression of the other and so on and so forth, and that was really cool. And separately, I also led my colleagues in some work at my school um, just in, in practicing how to speak with each other across lines of Uh, Politics across the political divide, which is really kind of forbidden territory. So, these were a couple of experiences I had that really charged me up and um, made me think it was time to start thinking full time about how we educators can help prepare kids to face the challenges of a polarized society. I was in graduate school in the 2004 2005 school year, and during my graduate program, I wrote a paper about. about polarization and about how educators could, you know, be part of the remedy to prepare kids for polarization. And so so while I've sort of convinced or fooled myself into thinking that I've been worried about this increasingly over the last few years, in fact, this has been on my mind a long time. And I think this is when people say, um, people say to me, oh, that book is really timely. Everybody's thinking about polarization now. I, I increasingly realize I think we could have said that five years ago. It's really timely or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And we, we have forgotten as, as this has become so normalized in our society, that this is a challenge that's been going on a while.
1: Boy, that's a a really interesting observation. I do feel um, that the um, media discourse in the political sphere uh, has made it challenging to teach about media and politics since way before the advent of social media, right? So I remember doing some uh, instructional materials to help teachers use social media in, to, in the 2008 election cycle, and and the polarization topic was <laughs> all over, all yeah. over that election. So. That's a really great way to think about. It. You've been thinking about this for a long long time. Now, a lot of uh, the listeners and uh uh viewers of this podcast probably uh don't quite understand why history teachers and civic teachers are so invested in this topic of um of depolarization or in the broader concept of civic education, and um, we're celebrating Civic Education Week, uh, nationally and in Rhode Island. And so I wanted to ask you about that complicated word, citizenship. What does citizenship mean to you?
0: Since I'm a teacher, I actually, my first inclination is to think about the word citizenship on a small scale, because so often as a teacher, I would be in conversations with colleagues, with students, with parents, about my students as citizens of the classroom or as citizens of the school, right? So that was like a common, um, common descriptor or um, or a common way to think about how our kids were, were doing. And so, so I have um, often thought about the kid, the, the people near me, um, in terms of their citizenship. And I and I think what that has meant to me is relationships. So citizenship is kind of the manifestation of the relationships that we have um, with the others, right? And part of that is about rights and part of that is responsibility. So this is, this is a, a beloved um, phrase in you know, civics education and history teachers, rights and responsibility. But then I got thinking about how we take citizenship for granted, those of us who don't need, for example, to prove our understanding of American government and basic civics, to earn our citizenship badge, right? I don't have to do that every year. I just, I got my citizenship when I was born in my case and it's just there and I don't think about it. In the digital sphere, we are active citizens, whether we like it, whether we recognize it or not in this digital ecosphere. And so, although it might be hidden to us or obscured at some point that there is citizenship at play, we are receiving the same relational phenomenon that happens in a classroom or in a country is happening in the digital world. We are receiving, this is a, we're in this relationship where we are receiving constantly messages and uh, you know, influence from, uh, from, from those, those entities with whom we're connected digitally. And we are influencing, right through our media, through our output, through our, our content creation, Pretty, pretty darn cool. And
1: uh, to situate a discussion of citizenship in relation to relationships is super powerful. And I really appreciate how when you do that, by situating citizenship as a type of relationship, it's so productive and fertile, right? It helps you say, you can be a citizen of my classroom, You can be a citizen of a workplace. You can be a citizen of a a citizen of a country or of of a ecosystem (laughs) made up of zeros and ones. Right. right? Um, So relationships are um, characterized by some key features and respect and trust are part of that. Right. And when you talk about roles and responsibilities of citizenship, the way I think about that is, is those are decisions about our behavior in our relationships that make us trustworthy to others, to make others be able to depend on us, right? Um, and so I'm struggling with where knowledge fits in this. So knowledge is important, but how important is knowledge really to citizenship and um, why is history and civic education so darn focused on knowledge and not on relationships?
0: Knowledge is so important, and um, it's not going to go away. <laughs> it's important to know things, although increasingly we're, we're also able to gather knowledge quickly through our digital tools. But it's important to know things, right? That to be a um, sort of a literate uh, citizen of of our society, but so knowledge um,
1: shapes. Knowledge helps the way we interpret things, right? So when you have knowledge, you have background knowledge, it, it affects the way you interpret your present reality. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I feel like, okay, so knowledge is important to uh, hand to your, your behavior and your relationships today. Um, but I think a lot of us experienced civic education as kind of knowledge-centric Without so much focused on the habits of mind, the dispositions, the civic attitudes that are, um, that are increasingly needed to address the relationships um, that are the fabric of civic life. So in a way that brings us to this topic of your book about depolarization, teachers that I know are sticking very closely to teaching the facts of history and the facts of civics because it's scary to think about what does it mean to teach the dispositions the skills and the habits of mind that are more relational driven how can teachers and students help develop skills that lead to depolarization of our civic sphere
0: yeah, so you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Teachers are a little freaked out. I mean, um, many teachers are feeling like they're in a precarious position these days between a rock and a hard place and uh, trying to prepare kids for this complicated society, but also feeling like they're being squeezed from all sides about what is uh, forbidden material, um, depending on one's perspective and sort of a no-fly zone. Um, And yes, like the habits of mind, I love that term. I've always, since I discovered that term 20-ish years ago, I've loved that term habits of mind um, and the skills and dispositions that we want to engender in kids. So uh, that's where it is. Yep, knowledge is important, but skills, mindsets are are probably more important from my perspective because we we can quickly gather knowledge. We can't quickly accrue skills and mindsets. Those take, those take a long time to build up and are, are done so through the benefit of good teaching probably. Um, so how can teachers help in, instill those, those skills, those mindsets to help prepare kids to manage uh, a polarized society? Yeah, there, there are a lot of ways. I, so I'll give you what I think is the most important. I think the starting point is for teachers to believe that that's important. And I sort of would pause and, and maybe repeat that. That in my experience, um, really well-intentioned teachers who are trying to find the answer to the question you ask, like, hey, how can I help out here? How can I help these kids have the skills they're going to need to to navigate uh, a fractured society in a really complicated landscape? And they're looking for tools. They're looking for tools to implement in the classroom. And uh, I can talk about that a little bit too, but my counsel is to pause and take a breath and and just make sure that we educators believe that has great value and and if so, um, I think we will find the ways we will we will keep gathering different lessons and we will keep adding to our toolkit if we think this is really important and i and i I, I emphasize that because. I do in my research and writing and work with schools. I find that there's that people try to build a little bit of a firewall between the, the world of education. So here I am, a, a classroom teacher, and I think, okay, let me teach my class. A firewall between that and kind of the the political, um, you know, storm that rages beyond, and. And I, and I don't think that we can really build as, as clean a wall between those as we would like. And and that gets messy, but, but it's just the reality that, from my point of view, the political informs the school, and the school informs our political discussions. It's, it's a two-way street. So I think it starts with teachers saying, okay, yep, kids are going to occupy, they're going to navigate um, a challenging politically fractured society, it's worth it to me to invest myself in trying to help them do that as skillfully as possible. I think it starts at a more practical level. I think that, I think nothing happens quickly in education. I think that uh, things that stick and that have value tend to uh, transcend even even a life, even, excuse me, a a year-long experience in a classroom. I, I don't really I have a lot of humility as a, as a teacher. I think that I don't individually make all that much difference uh, in a kid's life. I think that collectively across the years, um, when there's continuity in the academic program, that that makes an impact. So, you know, building um, building environments, building communities within a classroom and with a, within sort of like the whole grade level within multi-grade levels where there are clear, um, where there's a clear community agreement about how we speak to each other. Um, You know, catchphrases like, listen to understand, not to, you know, not to get loud. Um, And I think I heard you say um, something for an upcoming initiative that you have, listen, uh, be more curious than furious, right? So (laughs) there, but, but, and that which is really cool. But so there are there are a whole there are a whole bunch of um, messages that I think that we need to establish for kids and be consistent from one teacher to another mm-hmm. about respect and about trying to build empathy and right. about creating right. a safe place even um, amid viewpoint diversity that will really convince people that it is in their best interest to take risks and to engage across lines of disagreement or whether when they're uncertain. Um, right. That's that's in the physical environment. I think it starts there. I think that there are a whole bunch of um, powerful media literacy lessons that teachers can gather, and I think implementing those. I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going to start to rush because I I've got so much to say. But um, but but can I think you give that
1: me, can you give me an example? First of all, I want to just really like underline the point you just made, which is if teachers think this is important. If they firmly believe this is an essential a part of education for democracy, they're going to make time to do it. And moreover, they're not just going to do it in their own little classroom. They're going to work with their colleagues across the school level, across the district level, to ensure that these norms of civility, these practices of, of these roles and responsibilities of citizenship are learned by by everyone through the whole cycle. I love that point, because it's, it's a team sport. You're just describing uh, teachers playing a team sport, working collaboratively with their, with their uh, community. But I'd love you to paint me a picture, tell me a story. Um, you did develop this really cool strategy of connecting your kids to kids in a completely different cultural milieu, right? And that pedagogy is fascinating to me. But I'm wondering about other like lessons that you can visualize for me and tell me, uh, help me paint a picture of like what kinds of instructional practices to help support depolarization?
0: So um, I, I will try to do that from my reading. You are a preeminent expert in media literacy and I, you um, defer to you uh, really in the area that I'm about to to, to talk about, but, I think my reading of the research on media literacy, what really grabs me, and I like to kind of strip things back to basics, and what I get from that is um, inquiry, right? So we want kids to be in the habit of, um, of inquiring and be curious about, about the messages they're receiving, about the sources of information, who wrote this, why, what's the hidden agenda, et cetera, et cetera, right? There are a million questions that we want kids to ask. And I think that, so I think that good teaching looks like building that kind of questioning into everyday practices. So I think about, for example, my teaching of the Civil War. I taught American history. Some of that included the Civil War. Um, one one topic that we got into uh, a, a little bit, at least scratch the surface of, was was the question of Black Confederates, whether African Americans fought for the Confederacy, because that was something that we would come across in various online sources, would sort of drop hints about this when my kids would research the Civil War. So rather than having media literacy stand on its own elsewhere, and then the study of history occupy, you know, this particular classroom, there are always these opportunities, yes, to bring them together and to have kids ask. And so with that particular example, um, I'm thinking of a few sources that we saw that, that were pushing this, um, this, this implication or this outright statement that a whole bunch of African-Americans fought for the Confederacy and the agenda there that we unpacked, <laughs> kind of fast-forwarding through this, was, oh, this is somebody who – wants to minimize the um, significance of slavery and the racial uh, element and reality of the Civil War. And, 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 that, and the way that they're doing that is to say, hey, come on, like, how important could race really have been? And, and was slavery really the primary driver if, in fact, there were a whole bunch of African Americans that fought for the Confederacy? So that was a really interesting opportunity. Those were really interesting questions that we were presented with. And in order to get some answers, we had to ask questions about the sources we were consulting, which led us, um, again, to sort of fast forward through it, to to discover that these weren't really very trustworthy sources. They weren't trustworthy at all. Right. Um, What I love
1: about that example is that it helps me visualize you and your students going on a a journey of asking questions and learning together. You were like co-learners because until you explore, looked at those websites, uh, sort of, I figured out who these authors were until you could make inferences about what the purpose were. um, That wasn't received knowledge that you were just transmitting to students. That was an inquiry practice that you and the students were going through together. You were modeling, but they were, but you were also, (laughs) you were also learning,
0: right? As you, as you figure out. I would add, and and I know this is a short podcast and we're going to run out of time, but I would just add that they're in in a situation like that. So we, the learning ran its course um, for that age group at that time, um, those classes that I had, I could imagine a really interesting um, second chapter to that learning. Wouldn't it be interesting To then go a step further and engage with the people who had created that media that that we sort of debunked. And instead of dismissing those people out of hand, which is what many people in my community might do, really continue the inquiry. And, you know, and like, what is it that made you create that? Or where did you get your information? what drove you to, to package up this material that my students eventually saw? And to and and when I say, a first step is for teachers to, to believe this is important. I'm talking about that sort of hard work too, engaging with people with whom we might sincerely and seriously and fundamentally disagree, and in fact mistrust, um, and and try to better understand where those people are coming from as a step to reach, I don't know if common ground, empathy might be a better word and a productive future might be a good way to say it as well.
1: Wow, wow. One of the things that I'm absolutely fascinated about is how your insight, how much courage it takes for us to um, listen, inquire with an open heart. And I'm remembering the first time I had a conversation with an anti-vaxxer and how scared I was and how fearful I was and how uncertain I was of what it was going to be like to be in that conversation and how, how generative it was, how useful it was, how it ended up really making me truly, um, less, uh, angry (laughs) and less afraid. So, what you're describing is a kind of liberatory stance if we can get beyond fear, right? Right. If we can, if we can set aside our fear, and I don't know about you, Kemp, but when I'm surrounded by a a group of people that I care about and trust, I'm less fearful. So maybe that's part of the solution as well, eh?
0: Well, well, it certainly is, but um, this is a podcast for another day, but I, I think that, um, I don't think we get rid of the fear or the mistrust exactly. And then you said maybe put it aside. I think we we will continue. We collectively, our students, they're going to continue to have knee jerk, um, visceral reactions to people and, and messages that that they really disagree with. And so we're going to have those deep emotions. We need to we need to learn how to manage them, identify them, manage them, and. And and see how that you know also is an is an element of this work and indeed of, of citizenship in person and, and citizenship online as well. So um, that's yeah. it. again another another podcast. But we uh, we've got challenges. <laughs> it,
1: I I I really mu- very much appreciate that, and so we can tease to our educator friends. Our high school educators, our college educators, that in Program Two of Courageous Rhode Island, we continue with professional development and education-specific programming. And Kent, uh, we're grateful that you have uh, uh, offered to help us with Program Two of Courageous RI when the educators get to dig in. Uh, to, that, to these important uh, competencies. So thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast today. We'll see you again at an upcoming Courageous Rhode Island event. But thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Kent is the author of Learning to Depolarize. He's the founder of Middle Ground School Solutions. He's helping us think more deeply about citizenship, democracy, civic education, and the important role we all play in depolarizing America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Renee Hobbs of the Media Education Lab. See you next time. Bye-bye.